because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, page 718 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 18, and we're going to read all the way to verse 34. Mark 12, 18 to 34. Some Sadducees, who say there is no no resurrection, came to Jesus and, and questioned him. Teacher? Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind, and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died leaving no offspring. The third likewise. So the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise... Whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus told them, Are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly deceived. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one except him. And to love him with all your heart and all, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Our Father in heaven, we want to hear what you have just spoken to us and understand it. We want to know you. We want to know the scriptures. We want to know the meaning of this text, not just what the words mean and what the concepts are, but what you are calling and compelling us to do in our lives. And so, Father, as we read your word, we pray that you would draw us near to you. Apart from your Holy Spirit, Lord, we can do nothing. And so we praise you for what we just sang when you told us that you will uphold us and cause us to stand upheld by your righteous, omnipotent hand. Because you hold us up, We can be confident that you will transform us this morning. So help us now as we lean on you and trust in you. May Christ be exalted 
And may we be helped in following Jesus so that we too may experience the joy of helping others follow your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is God out there? This is what a non-Christian might ask, rightfully so. Is God out there? Does he exist? There are so many different views among those who call themselves Christian. There are different views on those who aren't Christian. There are different religions. There's different scientific theories. And there's different philosophies. And there's a daily trouble, the daily trouble of life and our problems in this world. I mean, if God existed, why is there so much trouble in the world? If he's good and all-powerful, you know how that question goes. It's a question that seems worth asking. If I were God, I'd make myself clearer. Do you ever feel like that? Have you ever felt like that? If I were God, I'd make myself clearer. There's a book entitled that. I think it's a great title. Do you ever get in those situations where you cannot understand why God, if he, she, or it exists, is doing what he's doing or saying or not saying what he is or isn't saying? Do you ever wonder why? You ever ask that question, why God, if you're even there? If God exists, what is his message? What is he saying? What does he want us to know? And what is he saying for our life today? I mean, this book, if you're saying he speaks from the Bible, this is a fairly old book. The oldest book in your library, I'm pretty sure. What is he saying for our lives today? And why isn't he so clear? Well, we can't answer all of those questions. Those would be a lot of good questions. But it helps us to think about what is going on in this passage. This passage helps us know what God is saying to us today. And that God exists. Okay? And our teacher here this morning is, he's, he's, his name is mentioned in verse 24. His name is Jesus. You see it there in verse 24, Jesus told them. In verse 19, Jesus is called what? What do they call Jesus in verse 19? Master. Another translation might say teacher. Jesus is a teacher here. Now they're insincerely calling him teacher. Teacher, master. They're not really submitting to him as master. They're not really receiving his teaching as if he were their teacher, yet they give him that insincere verbal respect. Now, is Jesus the true teacher? Yes or no? Now, if you don't have the New Testament, can you say from the Old Testament that Jesus is the authoritative teacher? I would say yes. You might remember Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18 is Moses' last speech. Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech. He's about to die, and they're about to go into the promised land. Well, Moses was your great teacher for 40 years. Who's going to take his place? Here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And then in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. This is quoting God. I will put my words, God is saying, in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Moses was known universally among the Jews as the greatest prophet in Israel. And here Moses says, at the end of his life, there's going to be another prophet like Moses, the greatest of God's spokesman. And God will hold people accountable to whether they listen to this prophet or not. I would say that's speaking of Jesus. Isaiah 48, 17, 
Isaiah quotes the Lord. He says, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who teaches you for your benefit. Who's the one teaching here? The Lord, Yahweh. God is teaching. God will send a prophet who will teach in his name. Jesus is that teacher. And I think that's the point of this passage. You have the Sadducees challenging Jesus. They were religious teachers in Israel. You have a, a scribe who's a, really a Pharisee here who writes the, who's a, who writes the copies of the, of the book. He's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law and the, the, the books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And he's challenging Jesus with a challenging question. And Jesus is found so supreme that look at verse 34. The very end of verse 34. No one dared to what? Ask Jesus a question anymore. That's how clear and powerful and authoritative this man's teaching was. So here's the main idea. Because Jesus is the teacher come from God to authoritatively reveal God, we need to learn his teaching, right? If one is teaching, we need to be learners. We're students. We need to be learning what the teacher is teaching here. Now, in a Baptist catechism, there are many, several Baptist catechisms. In one of the old Baptist catechisms, there's a question that says, what do the scriptures mainly teach? And if you teach that to your children, the children are taught to answer. The scriptures mainly teach what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. Two things. What's the main thing the scriptures teach? What man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. And that summarizes this passage. Jesus is the authoritative teacher, and he says, you guys don't know God. You don't know what to believe about God. And then he says, then they say, what's the greatest commandment? And the greatest commandment is to love who? The Lord your God. So that's the duty God requires of man. This is really getting at the heart of what the Bible is about. Who God is, what God requires. So I have two points this morning. Know God and love God. Very simple. This is what Jesus is teaching. You want to know what the Bible is about? You want, to be, you want God to be clear with you about what he's saying? This is what he's saying. Know me and love me. Those are the two points. So verses 18 to 27, know God. Verses 28 to 34, love God. Let's look at the first one. Know God, verses 18 to 27. If we're going to receive the teaching of Jesus, we need to know God. So you have in verses 18 to 23 this story here, this peculiar story from the Sadducees who are asking Jesus a question. Now, the Sadducees were religious leaders. They were the minority. The Pharisees were the majority of religious leaders. The Sadducees were based in Jerusalem. They were tied to the priestly family. And they were known as the theological and social conservatives. Some people get this wrong. I've even taught this the other way, that they were the theological liberals. That's actually not true in my study. This week, they were actually the conservatives. What do I mean by conservative? Conservatives are, the opposite of conservative would be progressive. So the Pharisees were more progressive. Why? Because the, the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of Moses. That was their authoritative books. So as Scripture progressed with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the other prophets and apostles, the Pharisees took their teaching as well. And then they took the oral tradition on top of that. And so they, you know, the teaching of the resurrection and things like that, those things are clearer as you move on, even then, still kind of very, it's a very small theme in the Old Testament, but it's there, but not in the first five books, not as much as, as later. And so the Sadducees were saying, you guys are adding stuff to the Bible, 
Doesn't Deuteronomy say, just like Revelation, don't add to the Bible? Deuteronomy says that. Why are you adding to the Bible these other books? So they were the theologically conservative. In other words, it's not always right to be conservative, as you see the Sadducees here are going to be rebuked by Jesus. So because of their conservatism here, theologically, and because of their power, um, they were challenging Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their power. So they asked Jesus a question. What about the resurrection, Jesus? Now, it says here in verse 18, some Sadducees, and what do the Sadducees say in verse 18? What do, they, what do they deny? What do they not believe in? There is no resurrection. There is no resurrection. Now, the Sadducees actually believe that after you die, there is no life after death. Your soul and body are, perish forever. That's what they believed. That wasn't the popular view, most likely, among the Jews of that day. But that was their view. And they would debate with the Pharisees about that. And so they say, Master, teacher, we have a question for you. You say there's a resurrection. So, what if a man doesn't, doesn't Moses say in the books of Moses, Deuteronomy 25, that if a, man's wife, if, a, if a man marries a woman, they don't have kids, he dies, the brother's supposed to marry her to have offspring for that brother who died? That's what, the, that's what Moses said, right, Lord Jesus, right, teacher? Yes. Okay, well, what if the first brother died and then the second brother died and this mom had seven children and all seven brothers married the woman but none of them had kids with the woman and they all died when there's this resurrection that you believe in in the resurrection whose wife is she going to be that's the question that jesus has to answer here so what does jesus say in verse 24 are you not what? Mistaken. Aren't you deceived? Or aren't you mistaken? Why? What do they not know? Because you don't know the what? The scriptures and you don't know what? The power of God. There is a danger for us to be deceived. We can think we know God when we don't know God. We can think we know the scriptures when we really don't know the scriptures. It's possible it was for them. They wandered off track. They got lost. Do you know any Christians who look like they're lost spiritually? I mean, you know that they say they believe in Jesus, but they, for all intents and purposes of making disciples and loving God and following Christ, they look lost. They were deceived. They were lost. They didn't know the Bible, even though they held to the first five books Strongly, they didn't even know the first five books that well because Jesus is going to use the first five books to go against them. And then they held on to power. They were the power holders in Israel, more so than the Pharisees. And yet, they don't know what about God. They don't know about God's what? Power. So the things they prided themselves on. We have the first five books. You don't know the first five books. We know power. You don't know God's power. The very thing that they thought was their strength was actually their weakness. And if your strengths are your weakness, then you're in real trouble, right? It's not just like they're, they're, making, they're making mistakes on the periphery of their lives. The very core and center of who they were and what they believed was in jeopardy here. Because they were wrong. They were off. They were lost. They were astray. They were deceived. They were mistaken. And we can be too. And that's a warning for us to not be deceived. So what do we need to do? What did they not know? 
They didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. Let's just take those one at a time. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know God. Let's think about the scriptures first. They didn't know the scriptures. Now, in Isaiah 26, 19, Daniel chapter 12, verse 12, and Job 19, 25 to 27. I'll say those three again because I see some people writing. Isaiah 26, 19. We're not going to look at them. Daniel 12, 2, and Job 19, 25 to 27. Those three passages talk about the resurrection from the dead. So does the Old Testament teach the resurrection? Yes, it does. Isaiah, again, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, Job 19. But Jesus doesn't just quote the rest of the Bible. Remember, they don't believe in the rest of the Bible, right? So what does Jesus do? Before he actually answers from the Bible, look at his answer in verse 25. First, he gives his own teaching. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being... So verse 25, Jesus gives his own teaching. When we get to life after death in heaven, which is, by the way, not the final heaven. It's the current heaven, the present heaven. But when Christ comes again, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. We will all rise, and then we will come back on this earth, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we will live on this earth forever and ever and ever. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. So right now is the present heaven, not the final heaven. And so Jesus is saying, though, whether you're talking about the present heaven or the final heaven, here's the point, that when you die in the resurrection, there is no marriage. So your question of which of the seven brothers is she married to? Answer, none. Why? Because there is no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage. We, instead, we are like what? Angels. Now, it's not saying we become angels. Some people get that wrong. We don't become angels. You don't get your wings when you die. You're not a secret angel that when you pass away, God just wanted one of his angels back. No, that's not, that's not what this text is saying. We are like angels in one way. Angels don't marry. When we are in heaven, present heaven or final heaven, we don't marry. So your question is off because you don't even understand what happens after. You're assuming that the new earth will be like the old earth, but it's not. And so there won't be marriage. But then he goes beyond that. Look at verse 26. So first of all, Jesus says your question is way off because of that. But secondly, verse 26. Now concerning the dead being raised, let's get to the scriptures that you don't know. Haven't you read in the book of who? Whose turf is that? That's their turf, right? Don't, haven't you read in the book of Moses, your five books, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the what? Living. Is, did, now, if he was the God of the dead and they're not alive, how might have God said that? Not I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I what? I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus is going to them and saying, you say you believe the Old Testament. You say you believe those five books. You say that those are the words. Well, read the words. It's not past tense. It's what? Present. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And if you believe that, are you saying that God is the God of the dead? So you say that their bodies, there's no resurrection. You say there's no soul. They're just destroyed. How is he still their God? That makes no sense because Moses is 600 years after Abraham. How can Moses be the God of, I mean, how could God be the God of Abraham, 
1400 BC when Abraham died around 1900 BC. Unless Abraham still existed. Now, you might say, well, then this doesn't teach immortality. I mean, this doesn't teach resurrection, it just teaches immortality. Because it's just saying that Abraham's still there. Not necessarily that there's a resurrection. That's true. But if, if Abraham is still alive and God promised Abraham a blessing, even though they were cursed and the curse was death, is God really going to let death defeat his people? I mean, what kind of God would that be? I'm just going to let you be your soul separated from your body forever. You're going to be a disembodied spirit in heaven forever. That's not really victory. That's not what God promised Abraham when he said, go from the land to the land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. You're going to have a land of people and a blessing. And so the resurrection had to happen. And Jesus is saying, on your own scripture, you should have known this. Now look at verse 26 again. God, so he is the God. I am the God. God is God. God is powerful. It is present tense. And what they did not know about God is, according to verse 24, what attribute of God? In verse 24, they did not know the what of God? The power of God. Okay, they did not know the power of God. And if you don't know the power of God, you don't know God. If you don't know that God could raise the dead, you don't know God. And Jesus is, this is a Tuesday, he's going to die on a Friday. And within a week on that Sunday, he's going to rise from the dead. And God is going to show his power. And so if you don't know that God could raise the dead, then you don't know God. And you don't know the scriptures. You need to know God. Verse 24 says you need to know God. Look at verse 27. You are badly deceived because he's the God of the living. You don't know the God of the living. Now let me see if I could illustrate this from a kid's cartoon. Because um, my kids watch Sophia. I have four girls. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Sophia, some sort of princess. I don't really know all of the details of how this works. And that's not the point. The point is that there's this episode that I watched, I think it was this week, of Sophia. She's a princess. And um, there, was, there, were, there was another princess and a family on a boat sailing in a storm. And some thief comes to steal this magical key. The, the eight-year-old princess wrestles it away from the thief and the key drops in the water and they both fall in the water. Well, the key washes up on the shore where Sophia is and her family. And they say, oh, look at this key. This is really beautiful. And then this princess, eight-year-old princess, comes and says, that's my key. I need that because my people, that's the secret key to get into our mythical, it's a mythical kingdom that's kind of like an Amazon kingdom that doesn't exist on the map. But we need that key to get back to our home. And so the thief actually ends up on the shore as well. She magically turns into an eight-year-old girl and says, that's my key. So now the family has to discern whose key is it. And so you know what they do? They do princess tests. Sophia's older sister. Is it her older sister? You don't know the story? Okay. I don't know if it's older sister. There's two princesses in the home. Okay. Sophia's older sister. I'm guessing it's her older sister. She says, I've been reading this book, 1001 Tiaras. And so in this book called 1001 Tiaras, The Ultimate Guide to Being a Classic Princess, we could use three tests from here to find out if she's the true princess. And so they have three tests. The first test is gracefulness. A princess is graceful. So they do this dance. And the thief, who became an eight-year-old woman magically, she dances the waltz, and it looks so graceful. The other princess does a tribal dance from her, from her home that she learned, that all the girls learned in, in her tribe. And all the family loves the waltz because they're used to the waltz. 
But Sophia, one of the daughters, is like, oh, I like that other dance. That actually looks more graceful to me. So Sophia's starting to pick up on who the right one is and who the wrong one is. They're all trying to figure it out. That's the first test. The second test is how they receive a gift and the true princess wins that one. Then the third test is running through a maze. And whoever wins running through a maze is the true princess. I don't know, but um, it's a kid's cartoon. So, so that was it. Run through a maze and um, the, other, the, the thief cheated and prevented the, other, uh, the true princess from sleeping. And so she wasn't able to win the, the maze race. And so they give the key to the thief. She turns back into a woman and runs off. And by the way, the whole time Sophia is telling her parents, no, this is the true princess. And they're not listening to her. And so they end up getting the, the, the key back and saving the day. But the point is this. The family did not know who the true princess was. They didn't know. And because they didn't know, they made the wrong choice. And they did not listen to their daughter who was initially on the right track. And the point Jesus is getting at here is you don't know God if you don't know the scriptures. You might think you know God. You might give the key to this God or give the key to your life and say, here, this is the God I'm going to follow. This is the God I'm going to worship. And you got the wrong God because you had the wrong tests. And you didn't have the discernment to see who the true God was. And you weren't listening to the eight-year-old girl. Now, Jesus is not an eight-year-old girl here, but you're not listening to the true authoritative teacher who's teaching you the truth about who God is. I know that in the world today with the many religions and philosophies, it could be confusing as to who God is. But in one sense, it's not really that confusing. Jesus is clear with who God is. He's the God of the scriptures. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who's going to bring the resurrection from the dead. This is the God that you are to know. And if you don't know him, you are badly deceived. That's the point here. You are badly deceived. So, as a church family, or for you as an individual Christian, what, what should we do? If we're going to know God, we need to study his what? Study the scriptures. You said you, know, you don't know the scriptures or God. So know the scriptures. Study it carefully. Don't be content with just guessing who God is or you say, I feel like God is this to me. God is like this to me. Well, that might be true feelings, but have your feelings ever been wrong? Yes, right? How many people feel they're going to win the lotto? Right? And you could, I really feel it this time. This is the ticket. Your feelings can deceive you. Don't just trust your feelings. Study the scriptures. Think over the scriptures. At the same time, don't just be content to know the scriptures. This is a book. Now, this is God's book. This is the, this is the divinely inspired book breathed out by God. And yet, the challenge is not to be masters of the book, but to let the book master us. The challenge is to not just know the book, but know the author of the book. He's not just saying you don't know the scriptures. You don't even know God. You don't know the power of God. So let's study the book that we might worship and bond with the author of the book. As a church family, what does this mean for us as a church? It means we need to expect, demand, and consume, and converse about God's word being carefully taught. We need to expect biblical teaching in this church. We need to hold everyone who teaches the word to teach the Bible biblically and accurately. And we need to encourage them in it. And then we as a church family need to not just sit here and listen. We need to talk about what we're learning with each other. That's how we know God more. This is not a personal Bible study where you sit here and you're just here for yourself and you leave. If you're a member of this church, you're, you're part of a church family. The word shapes our church as we converse about the word. 
If you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you is to not be deceived. Know what the Bible says about God. Read this book. If you're not a Christian, you're visiting with us this morning. We have a free book for you. Who is Jesus? I want to give this to you. Just let me know. Um, read it or read the Bible even more, more so than this. Know the scriptures. Read the gospel according to Mark or the gospel of John and read it and know who Jesus is for yourself. Now, you might say, PJ, that's exactly why I'll never be a Christian because the Bible is a bunch of legends. I mean, really? Angels? Are angels scientifically proven, PJ? Really? In light of modern science, modern history, historical studies, and, and culture, the Bible is a bunch of legends. How can it even be scientifically accurate? It's historically proved to be false. And even the social teaching of the Bible, I mean, think about it, PJ, with cultural trends of today of what is sexually acceptable and what is not, the Bible is so off. It's so stuffy and out of date. It's so socially regressive. How can we trust the Bible? Let me give you three responses to that briefly, and we'll move on to the second point. Response number one, the Gospels, like the book of Mark, it's written too soon after Jesus died and rose to be legend. I know it says a Jewish man rose from the dead, but the Gospel according to Mark was written 30 years after Jesus died and rose. Now, if you're going to do legends, you know, tall tales, it takes decades. It takes hundreds of years for the legend to find validity or to be accepted. If you're writing 30 years after the fact and you're saying that Jesus fed 5,000 people plus women and children, so 20,000 people, you think some of those 20,000 people are still alive today, 30 years later? Yeah. And if you say Jesus did it, all they have to say is, I was there. He didn't do that. It was written too soon to be legends. Secondly, the content here is too counterproductive for it to be false and legendary. For example, who were the first witnesses when Jesus rose from the dead, men or women? Women. Now, in Roman culture in that day, women were not even allowed to testify in court. And yet the Bible says that women were the first to see Jesus. Why? Because they're making up legends? No, if, it's make, if you're making up legends, you don't say that. You say that the men saw Jesus first. Why did they say women saw Jesus first? Because women saw Jesus first. It's just telling the truth. It's not making up a story. It's not trying to, to capitulate to, the, to what's acceptable in the day. It's just telling what actually happened. And then thirdly, if you say, well, the Bible's socially regressive, PJ, look at what, it's, what it says about men and women's roles or gender or marriage or, you know, take whatever issue. Uh, it's just, it's socially out of date and it's offensive to our culture today. Well, I can see that. You could say, well, just common sense says that the Bible's wrong. You might think that, but you know what? Other cultures think that this culture is wrong on some things. And so even you, if you think about your beliefs, your beliefs are maybe out of step with your grandparents' beliefs, your great-grandparents' beliefs, probably, for some of you. And what you believe might seem silly to your great-grandchildren three or four generations from now. So just because something offends you doesn't mean it's not true because we, the things we assume are true in our culture could actually be wrong. Isn't that true? And if you are saying that what we believe in this culture in the United States of America in 2016 has to be right, then you're assuming that your culture and your time in history is the authoritative culture. And all other cultures have to bow down to whose culture? To our culture. Do you know that even in 2016 in other countries, they, would, they scoff at some of the things we believe in in America? Is that true? So it's not just the majority common sense. Every culture is offended by parts of the Bible and affirmed by parts of the Bible. 
So don't toss the Bible out just because it's socially unacceptable to some of the things that you have swallowed from our culture. So that's point number one, know God. Point number one is know God from the Bible. But you know what? Knowing God is not enough. You have to do more than knowing God if you're going to live for God's glory. So the, main, the other thing that the Bible teaches is the duty that God requires of man. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes approached. He said, which is the most important command of all? And Jesus said, this is the most important. Verse 29. Verse 30 says, listen, or 29 says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is not telling you here how to become a Christian, Okay. If you're not a Christian, please don't misunderstand this point. You don't love God to become a Christian. That would be work salvation. You don't love God to become a Christian. You trust Christ to save you from your sins. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. But once you become a Christian, this is how you live your life, by loving God. And actually, if you're not a Christian, this is still an obligation to you. This is how you're supposed to live as a human, is to love God. Now, this question, what is the most important, was a debate of that day for several reasons. In the first five books of Moses, there are 613 commands, 365 prohibitions, don't do this, 248 positive commands of what to do. And there were debates. Some commands are heavy commands, the big, heavy, strong commands. And then there were light commands in the Bible, in the, in the first five books. And there was a debate about which ones were which. And so we're asking the question here, which is the greatest command? And the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay? So if you're taking notes, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll actually do a devotion tonight in our evening service on Deuteronomy chapter 6 just to think about this a little bit more from the Old Testament. But in this passage... They say, Jesus quotes here, what every Jewish boy would have known. The Shema. The here. Shema just means here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me just quote to you some lines from Deuteronomy 6, just so you could get an idea of what it feels like. So, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love God with all you are. And then it says this. I'll just quote you some things from Deuteronomy 6. These words are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit down. Bind them as a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your gates. Be careful not to forget the Lord. Fear Yahweh your God. Worship him. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord God is among you. He is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and wipe you off the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give to your fathers. You hear the force of those things? Does that give you an idea of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You're talking about it. You're writing it down. You're speaking of it. God is your only God. You're not testing God. That's what it means to love God. And we'll think about that more tonight. But for now, let's get to verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How many gods are there? One God. Now, this is important for the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know why? Because in, even in Jewish times, but even with, with the gods of Egypt, 
even in the Roman times and Greek times here in the New Testament, many people believed in many gods. So, just to make it modernized for today, pretend there was a god of basketball and a god of parenting and a god of school, actually. Um, when we were in L.A., there was a Hindu there was a Hindu worship service going on in the gym right after our service. And so I asked the Hindus there, what, what's going on here? And they said, oh, we're worshiping this god, and they named the god, and it was the god of education. And they invited me to come there and, and offer you know, incense to this god as well so that my kids would do well in school. Okay? I'm not saying that mocking. I'm just, that's what, what it is. And when you believe in different gods, there are different gods that you make sacrifices to to get the different pieces to fill your life with joy. And if there's five gods, you need to love all those gods in fifths. Right? One fifth for each god or whatever the case. But if there's one god, then you're to love him with what? All your heart. All your soul. All your mind and all your strength. Because there's no other god to love. There's no other God to bless you. There's no other God who made you. There's no other God you owe. And because of that, this is the God you are to love with everything you are and not have other gods before this God. One God, one focus for your whole life. Not part of your life. God is not just God of your Sunday mornings. He's God of all seven days of your week. He's not just God of the offering you give to the church. He's God of all your money. He's not just God of some of your relationships. He's God of all of your relationships. He's not just God of your life from this season of your life, but he's God of all of your life. He's always God all the time for all that you are. And therefore, we are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, heart and mind are almost the same thing here. It's really the control center of your life. Do you have any passions in your life, any ambition, anything that, any, any agenda in your life? What are you going to do this week? You have an agenda. You know what that's driven by? Your heart and your mind. It's the control center of what your plans are. Love God with all your plans, all your thinking, all your devotion, everything that you are invested in. And then love God with all your soul, all, your, all that you are intensely love God, with all your strength, all the power you have that drives everything you do, it should be directed towards who? God, in love for God. And if you don't do that, guess what? You are sinning. For any moment of your life where you're not loving God with all you are, you're sinning. That's heavy, right? Then you go to verse 31, the second command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is from Leviticus 19 verse 18. So again, the command is to love, which means seek your joy. So if I would say loving God is seeking your joy in God, seek all of your happiness and satisfaction in God. Because that's how, when you love your spouse, what do you do? You want all your happiness in their happiness, right? You're happy when they get happy. You have children and you don't care about Disneyland anymore. When you were a kid, you cared about Disneyland. Now you just want them to be smiling, right? That's what parents do at Disneyland. They don't care about their own happiness. They just want to see their kids laugh and smile. Why? Because their joy, that's love. Why is that love? Because their joy is in the joy of the ones they love. And when your joy is in your neighbor's joy, you're loving them. When you are happy in your neighbor's happiness, you love them. And when you don't care about your neighbor's happiness, you don't love them. That's what love is. When you get happy about their happiness. And so here it says, love, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me just read you again some verses from Leviticus 19 that are tied around this context. Leave, leave food for the poor and don't, don't take all your crops in. Don't steal. 
Don't act deceptively or lie to one another. Don't oppress your neighbor. Pay your hired hand their wages that are due. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Don't act unjustly when deciding a case in law. Don't be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Don't jeopardize your neighbor's life. Don't harbor hatred against your brother. Don't take revenge or bear a grudge against the members of your community. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord Yahweh. Get an idea of what it means to love your neighbor? That's the second command. Now, why is this the second command? Why is it not the first command? Because God is more important than people. Right? God's your creator, not them. But why is this the second command? Because if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commands are towards who? God. And the second six commands are towards who? People. And so, even in the Ten Commandments, you have towards God and towards people. But why people? Why do we need to respect people so much? Here's why. Because humans are made in the image of God. In other words, when you talk down to or disrespect or dishonor a fellow human, who do you disrespect? God. That's what James says. How can you say you love God and speak evil of your neighbor? Really? And then you're going to say you love me? You don't love me. That's what 1 John says. If a man doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Impossible. Don't say you love God when you disrespect and dishonor and sin intentionally against someone made in the image of God. That is inconsistent. And really, it's impossible. You can't love God when you belittle God's image in fellow humans. Which is why, whether it's pro-life causes or the gender debates of today, it's not just about fighting for our Christian causes, it's fighting for all humans. This is for everyone's good. Because we don't want to disrespect any human who's made in God's image. We want to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. That's the command. That's the command. And so we need to do this. And, and so look at, look at the re- reply of the Pharisee here. Teacher, you are what? The scribe said to him, verse 32, you are what? You're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there's no one else except him. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, understanding, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important. You're right. It's more important than what? Verse 33. Then all what? It's more important than all burnt what? Offerings and sacrifices. This is just what the Old Testament said. It's all about the heart. Love God, Deuteronomy 10, 12. Love God, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, Deuteronomy 10, 12. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Hosea 6, 6 says this. I desire loyalty and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, who's the one who commanded burnt offerings? Who commanded it? God did. And yet, God has a more important command. Don't do some rituals that show that you love me when you're going to disobey what I'm actually clearly telling you. If you love me, keep my what? Commandments. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24? If you are going to offer your gift on the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, what should you do? 
Leave your gift on the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother first. Then come and offer your gift. If you don't reconcile with people, if you don't reconcile with people and you keep ritualistically attending church, giving offering, taking communion, listening to preaching, or for me, in my case, preaching God's word, you must be careful that you are not actually deceiving yourself in your love for God. If you love God, keep his what? Commands. If he tells you to make right with your brother, guess what you need to do? Don't come to church on Sunday, maybe. Don't take communion. Don't preach a sermon, PJ. Don't listen to a sermon, brother or sister. Go reconcile first. And if you don't, guess what you're doing every time you hear preaching? You're sinning. You're disobeying God. Communion service after communion service. Gathering after gathering with a trail of irreconciled relationships behind you. Saying, I love God. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Psalm 51 says. So we're to love God with all we are, which means we're to love people. And if we don't, then we're not, then we're far from the kingdom of God, as verse 34 says. But look at verse 34, last verse here. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, this is ironic. So the man asks a question, which is the most important command? Jesus answers. And the man says, guess what, Jesus? You've answered what? Correctly, you're right. So who's the one judging who in that response? The Pharisee is judging Jesus. Jesus, I give you two thumbs up. Good job, Jesus. And then Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Who's in the judge seat? Jesus is, right? You might say I got the right answer, but you're either in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. And guess who's calling that? I am calling that. And you're not far from the kingdom of God. So that's an encouraging thing, but let's get right who's judging who here, right? I'm judging you. You're not judging me. And you're close to the kingdom. Now, why is he close to the kingdom? Because if you love God perfectly, you'll go to heaven? Well, yes, but can you love God perfectly? No. So why is he getting close to the kingdom here? Do you remember Mark 1, 14 and 15? The very beginning of the, this gospel account, it says, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. And verse 15 says this. This is Jesus' words. The very first words of Jesus in this gospel account. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and trust the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has what? Come near. What do you need to do? Repent and trust the gospel. You need to repent from your sins. But guess what? If you think you're okay, you're not going to what? Repent. If you're not convicted of sin, you'll never repent. If you're always justifying yourself and defending yourself and making excuses, you'll never repent. But this guy is getting close. Why? Because he's saying, you're right, Lord. You're right, teacher. Loving God is more important than all my sacrifices, all my rituals. Well, now he's starting to feel the what? He's starting to feel the weight of the command. And when you start to feel the weight of the command, guess what you're, you're getting close to? Repentance. If you don't feel the heaviness of God's word on your soul, you will not repent. You will deflect and justify yourself. And you will push yourself further from the kingdom of God. But if you feel the weight of the fact that you need to love God every single second of every single day with all that you are and love your neighbor to the very same degree that you love yourself, and you feel the weight and the impossibility of these commands, you start to say, Lord, 
Help, right? I can't do it. Ah, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because when you start to realize you can't do it, you start to realize Christianity is not, is not about how much Christian things you can do to become a Christian. It's about repenting from your righteousness, repenting from your religion, and repenting from your sins. Turning from that and turning to God and saying, Lord Jesus, take me. I need you. I need you, God, to change me. That's why it says a broken spirit God will not despise, a broken and contrite heart. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Those who are rich in spirit? No, those who are what? Poor. And when you start thinking about this command, don't you feel how spiritually poor you are? <laughs> right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone here, anyone here feel like they're just, they just got it down? I got this. I'm spiritually rich. The, verses like this, when you feel the weight of it, stress your poverty of spirit. That you're broke. You got no spiritual cash. You just need Jesus. Amen. And that's the point. And when you get that, you get closer to the kingdom. And so if you're not a Christian, here's the good news. Well, let me give you the bad news first, then the good news. The, the bad news, sort of bad by itself, is God made you, and he made you in his image to, to, to love and enjoy him. But you and I have turned, from our, to, have turned from God and said, I don't want to love you, God. I want to use you to, to love other things that I really enjoy. And the Bible calls that sin and idolatry. And so God says, well, I'm going to punish you for that. The, the punishment of that is condemnation and death. But here's the good news. God sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise from the dead. So that if you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, and entrust your life to Jesus, with all your imperfections, with all your sin, with all your lack of loving God, and all of your loving other things more than God, if you just ask God for forgiveness and give your life to him, trusting him, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. And guess what? The one who's forgiven much loves much, Jesus said. And the one who's forgiven little loves little. When you feel the weight of your sin and the, the, the relief of God's forgiveness, your love goes in proportion to what you understand. And so we need to preach, we need to, we, well, we need to love God by first understanding his love for us and repent from our sin. If you're a church member here, what are we telling you? Love God and love your neighbor. Meditate on God's love. You can't microwave a love for God. You need to meditate on God's love and meditation takes time. Meditate on your sin and God's forgiveness. Don't just say, I know I'm a sinner. I know you know you're a sinner, church family. I know you know you're a sinner, but that's not good enough. You need to feel the weight of your evil and then feel the joy of the cross. If you don't feel the weight of your evil, your joy is very minimal. I'm pretty sure of that, about that. You feel the weight of your sin and then you look at the gospel, you can't help but smile. Me? Me? I'm one of yours? What? All my sins forgiven? Past, present, and future? My hard heart? My cold heart? Wow. As a church family, we must not lose our first love. We need to work at encouraging each other to be lovers of God and passionate, enthusiastic neighbors to our people. So as we close, how can we expect to live like this if it's so impossible? Here's how. They didn't know God's, they didn't know the scriptures or God's power, right? But who knew God's power? 
Jesus did. He knew the power of the resurrection. He knew his power so much that he was willing to die and say, Lord, take this cup from me. Father, take this cup from me. You're not going to take it from me? Okay, I'm going to die because I know the power of your resurrection. I know you, and I know the scriptures say that I will be vindicated in the end. So I'm going to entrust myself to you because I've studied the scriptures, and I know who you are, that I'm willing to die and give my life under your wrath for the sins of many. So he knew God. What was our second point? Love God. Did Jesus love God? Oh, did he love God? Why did he go to the cross? Say, well, he loved us. Yeah, he loved us, but he loves God more. He loves his father more. He did it for his father's sake, ultimately. That's why he went to the cross. You read John over and over again. I am here to do what my father sent me to do. I got one mission, to do what my father sent me to do because I love him. And I want him to be glorified. And because Jesus knew God's power to go to the cross, and because Jesus loved God to go to the cross, guess what we get? Forgiveness, grace, and power to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Father, thank you for the gift of your resurrection power. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that Jesus knew you and did not waver in obeying you because he knew that you were true and right and powerful. He knew the scriptures. And we praise you that Jesus loved you. That when Satan and the world and the Jews and the Romans and his disciples abandoned him and one of them even betrayed him and one of his most closest disciples denied him, he did not waver in his love for you. He loved you all the way to the cross and through the cross into the resurrection so that all of us from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language would have secure salvation as he secured our faith in him. And he, he secured not only our faith, he secured the open invitation to everyone in the world that they might be saved if they would repent and believe. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for loving us in Christ. And thank you for making yourself known to us through Jesus, not only the authoritative teacher, but our King and our God. We follow him now gladly. And we pray that anyone here who has not trusted in him, in him yet that even this morning they would trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.